Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Big Big Ten Football Show, where we talk everything Big Ten football each week during the season, twice a week during the season. I'm your host, Daniel Mogollon, and we're going to talk about week two. And, um, you know, since it's a little later in the week on Wednesday, as I'm recording uh, Wednesday, almost noon on the East Coast, uh, morning time on the West Coast, we're going to take, you know, try to take a little bit more of a big picture and look at these teams and, and the direction they're heading in this season. Are they, you know, overranked, underranked, properly ranked for the teams that are in the polls? Um, you know, what have we seen so far and what does that indicate for the teams uh, moving forward? You know, tying in a little bit to what we saw on Saturday and, and what that, you know, what we saw on Saturday um, leads us to project things moving forward, and we're going to jump right into it with our first guest, uh, my former co-host uh, Lloyd Ribner, um, who is a Buckeye guy. So you know he's coming on today as basically um, the big Big Ten football shows Buckeye correspondent, so to speak, to talk about um, their surprise loss uh, at home to the Oregon Ducks. Whether um, you know they're ranked where they should be, uh, nine in the AP poll, eleven in the coaches poll, and of course the uh, biggest story there for them moving forward is we're going to focus a lot on that defensive side of the ball, uh, defensive coordinator Kerry Coombs, and um, you know where he might be going forward as their head, as their DC, and uh, Ryan Day's press conference where he failed to even give the. Uh, um, dreaded vote of confidence. Kerry Coombs didn't even get that from head coach Ryan Day. So let's jump right into that uh, at the top of the show. That was the biggest game and the biggest impact coming out of the Big Ten in week two. And joining us now is a very, very special guest, dear to my heart, my former co-host on the big show, Lloyd Ribner III. Lloyd, it didn't take long, but we got you back on the pod. How's it going? I'm good, Danny. I'm good. I'm, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it's been a, a fun couple of weeks of football. It's been a while since we were able to hop on and actually record. You know, for, for those of you who don't know, Danny and I actually do talk when we're not uh, recording a podcast, but it's nice to be able to hop back on and be able to talk college football with you. Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of the genesis of us starting a podcast was because basically 95% of my phone conversations are with you and 95% of those conversations are about college football or Big Ten football. So it's like, hey, if we just recorded this, it would be a pod, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, whether, you know, pre-COVID when we were sitting at a bar talking sports or, or on the phone, I would say even more since since covid during those times, being able to being able to connect, and yeah, you know, I think it's it's always been something that that we've connected well over, and we've always had fun chatting about. And as uh, two two New Yorkers who now I guess would say live in the uh, extended Big Ten footprint, um, although I know a whole bunch of Big Ten people wouldn't necessarily agree. Uh, you know, as two uh, longtime Big Ten fans and, and people who are who are uh, dedicated to the Big Ten cause, as, as I, I kind of like to think of it now, is I, I want to say just about everybody is uh, with the SEC or against the SEC, if you would. Um, we're definitely uh, on that Big Ten side of things. <laughs> That's true. Yes, this is 
this is correct. This is uh, we're 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 doing the um, uh, Jim and Dwight meme. Do you want to form an alliance? <laughs> correct, correct. It's very uh, unfortunately, it feels political. Where it's you know you're either you're either on one side or the other, and it just seems like everybody is uh, dropping dropping into their bunkers and, and they're going to fire away. But um, you know, I think one of the things that makes the Big Ten so special is is the history and the traditions. They've been around forever, and uh, you know, these are these are schools that deeply care about their about their football, um, but it it's about the entire game day game day experience. And whether you're uh, in Ohio State or a Michigan that's won national titles for years and years and years, or you know you're a Purdue or Northwestern that is can get punchy from year to year and take on one of those big names and end up potentially vying uh, for winning a Big Ten title, you can see how much it means to each and every one of those fans out there. And it's exciting to see the fans back in the seats. And, and I think to me, it, it, it makes it feel like college football is actually back now that we've got the fans back in the seats. All right, Lloyd, uh, for today's purposes, for today's show, you are our resident Ohio State expert. That's why you're hopping on to join with me to break down that uh, Buckeyes loss to the Oregon Ducks, uh, 35 to 28. Um, you know, throughout the broadcast, I kept hearing Joel Klatt talk about uh, that Oregon speed and how the Big Ten, you know, this is a different thing that that Ohio State doesn't have to deal with in the Big Ten and that Oregon's recruiting at Ohio State's level. I honestly really don't know what he's talking about. Um, you know, Oregon's recruiting at the Penn State, Michigan level. And, and I don't know, you know, I, I feel like every time a Big Ten team loses to a marquee team for another conference, this is like the same old, same old, like it's like the same boring uh, go-to move to say lack of Big Ten speed. It's like, you know, I don't know if people follow the NFL draft, but uh, Penn State, Michigan, they produce some guys that go to the NFL. And, and, and those guys, some of those guys, they're fast. They're fast, too. Um, what I saw was, which surprised me more so, was Oregon beating Ohio State in the trenches. Um, and, and I thought that was the difference in the game. If you wanted to make it even more simplistic, could you just say um, Joe Moorhead is greater than uh, Kerry Combs? No, for absolutely. Um, you know, I, I definitely think that uh, whether it's Joel or, or just just about the large majority of, of college football pundits and, and, and uh, media members during this week when they were talking about this game, I think a lot of them talked about the concept of what Oregon used to be. Um, you know, it kind of seems as if people have put Oregon into a time capsule from, you know, six, seven, 10 years ago and have forgotten about them until this week. Um, and, and they pulled them back out and said, oh, look, they're the same Oregon. Look at the uniforms. Look at this. No, this is a Mario Cristobal football team. This is a team that uh, has has really done a great job of marrying what Cristobal believes in, which is winning in the trenches while still being able to hold on to some of that speed uh, within the program. You know, I would say a team like Oregon, as you said, they're not recruiting on the level that Ohio State is. And quite frankly, if you just look at the sidelines, uh, the Ohio State sideline is a more talented one than that of Oregon. Now, Oregon does have pl individual players um, who can punch up to that to that level. But the reality 
is 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 two two of the big ones in uh, in Floma and Thibodeau were both sitting on the sideline in street gear um, while while uh, while this game was unfolding on the field, which was one of the even bigger surprises. As you know, those are two of the guys who. Uh, Ohio State was in on on the recruiting trail and weren't able to bring to Columbus yet at the same time didn't seem to be missed when uh, when you know push came to shove down in the trenches whether it was the offensive line the defensive line I mean it, it was it was not a traditional Ohio State uh, experience for fans sitting in the sitting in the stands or watching on TV and, and use, usually used to watching the guys in scarlet and gray maul the other opponents I mean this is this is a, a team that you know has over the last you know X amount of years had from Nick Bosa and Joey Bosa and Chase Young, et cetera. And, you know, Zach Harrison was supposed to be that guy. Zach Harrison's supposed to be the person that the torch was passed to. And quite frankly, he has yet to live up to, to that hype in, in any way. Um, and, you know, the same can be said about Tyreek Smith, who, who looked unbelievable to close out last year uh, against Clemson, et cetera, in the Big Ten, uh, in the Big Ten Championship. But, uh, you know, this this Buckeye defense, zero sacks, one tackle for loss. Um, you know, this is not the type of, of quote unquote, as they call them in Columbus, the silver bullet defense that uh, that they've come to expect. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you don't want to read too much into just the stat sheet, but the stat sheet confirmed what we saw. And Oregon ran the ball 38 times. Uh, if you count their 35 passes, they had 73 offensive plays. And in the entire game, they had um, one negative yard, I believe. And uh, Verdell, their running back, who had 20 carries, had no rushes of negative yards. So I, I think that's a major problem. That's not what you expect from an Ohio State defense, um, particularly up front. We're used to the Boses. We're used to the Chase Youngs. And as you mentioned, you know, Zach Harrison, a five-star kid, was supposed to be the next guy, um, and he just hasn't really delivered. He did last week in week one against Minnesota. He had the strip sack, which turned into a, a touchdown fumble recovery, which might have been the difference of the game. So I think it's a combination of the front isn't as dominant as it used to be, as you mentioned, and the back seven probably isn't as great either. So they actually need the front more than past Ohio State back sevens have needed. Because if the front isn't going to make that game-changing play, I, I, I think the other team's just going to move the ball down the field. I mean, Oregon didn't have, outside of that one touchdown run, they didn't really have, like, a lot of huge plays. They just methodically yeah. moved the ball down the field. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was going to say is is there weren't these huge game-breaking plays or blown coverages or, you know, just right. just had plays where, where you're sitting there and ripping your hair out if you're Ryan Day and, and you're saying, hey, what's what's going on on that individual play? It was a consistent, slow, and steady uh, just attrition. It was, you know, a death by a thousand cuts, but each one of those cuts was good for about 10 yards. I mean, you know, they, they averaged – over seven yards rushing and almost 14 yards, uh, you know, per reception. And realistically, it felt as if Oregon the entire time took what Ohio State gave them and was willing, was willing to live with that. And they were patient enough to do that, which can be incredibly difficult, especially in a game like that, in an atmosphere like that in front of 100,000 fans 
when you're going on the road, you're the you're the team in Oregon who's, you know, their body clock was definitely, you know, not what it traditionally is playing a game at nine in the morning for them, um, you know, and, and waking up and coming out and playing that game. And they, like I said, they took what was given to them and Ohio State gave it to them all game long. There were very, very few adjustments made. And, and this has been a, a consistent, consistent uh, issue for Ohio State, you know, quite frankly, since Kerry Coombs came over, uh, came back to Ohio State from the Tennessee Titans, where he was the, the defensive back coach like he was in his previous in, in Columbus, uh, you know, but it does seem like that defensive coordinator title just might be a little bit too big for him, quite frankly, as, as you know, I, I want to say that the recruiting is still there, but the in-game adjustments, the ability when you're playing a single high safety defense and you're, you're you know, kind of using a hybrid linebacker safety and, and being able to uh, make the substitutions that you need and the adjustments that you need mid-game to play a defense like that, it's just not happening. And, and you just watch it in the first half happened. They went, they went into the locker room, they came out in the second half there weren't really that many changes, um, unfortunately. And, and, you know, that, that is what led, I know a lot of, a lot of people are sitting around talking about, you know, maybe a, a missed drive in the fourth quarter, which, you know, obviously as a, somebody who, uh, if, if you're an Ohio state fan, you're accustomed to Ohio state marching up and down the field continuously and should in your mind should never be stopped. But, you know, CJ Stroud was not the issue this week. Now, there were flaws there. There were things that are missing. Remember, this is his second game um, that he he's ever truly played. And, and, you know, this Buckeye offense and Ryan Day asked him to throw 54 times. And he did pretty darn well um, in regards to what was being asked of him. This defense just continuously allowed Oregon to score at will. Um, I mean, to, to not be able to understand a basic shift concept of your opponent which led to not one not two not three but four different plays where uh you know ducks players are running untouched uh to the left side i mean it just was absolutely untenable if if ohio state's looking to to reach the heights that they traditionally do yeah i mean that that's where the lack of adjustment you couldn't have highlighted it more, right? They basically ran the same exact play for three different touchdowns and then went back to it again for a, not a touchdown, but a first down conversion. I believe it was like a third and five or third or third and six play where they just ran it again, where instead of, you know, going for the pylon, he was going for the first down marker and that converted a key uh, third down, which I think later led to a touchdown as well on that drive. It was, they were already moving. So it was just, it was just amazing to see, like, is this for real? Are we watching this high level football where you can just, Hey, let's just run it again. Let's just run yeah, the same I mean, play because they're not stopping it. With that, with that one individual piece. I mean, it just felt like you were watching a bad high school football team. Quite frankly, it felt like you were watching a team that legitimately did not understand how to make a very, very simple adjustment. And you're talking about a team that, you know, quite frankly, when that, when that position opens up as the defensive coordinator of Ohio State, you can basically hire whatever defensive coach you want in the country outside of maybe two or three. I mean, that is a, a, a job that you can grab anybody. And, you know, uh, while it does seem that Ryan Day made the decision based on whether it's he's comfortable with somebody that he knew, you know, I, I do think 
Kerry, Kerry Combs is an excellent defensive backs coach. He's a fantastic recruiter. Um, you know, he's a great, great guy to have in practice. He's fiery. He lights guys up. You know, they get excited about being around him. The, the ability, the ability and inability to kind of, uh, really control and manage that defense on a game day is just, it's so stark. You know, we're not, we're not even talking about, you know, quite frankly, like in Oklahoma where you're sitting there and going, you know, on the defensive side for quite some time, they didn't have the talent that they needed on that side of the football. This Ohio state team has talent on that side of the football. Um, and they're just not in the, in, in the position to make plays. Um, and, you know, if you go back, you watch tape. I mean, you've got linebackers that are moving slow to decisions off their feet. Um, and then, you know, you've also got a, a guy who started all last year as, as one of your cornerbacks who by all accounts, Ryan Day even said it in his, in his presser this weekend or this week, um, you know, seven banks is healthy. Seven banks is, is good to go and ready to play. And he's not playing. Um, and that's a, that's just another added piece on top of all the other issues um, you know, and, and he was very deliberate in, in leaving that up in the air. What that really means, I don't know. Um, but when you have somebody like that who has had the experience of playing in big time games and taking on a receiver one on one and you're taking him off the field, um, not for health reasons, not because he can't play. I mean, that's not that's not good for the defense on the field. It's not good for the psyche of the defense. And it definitely also prevents you from making some of the changes that you'd like to see. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Seven Banks, uh, while he had a rocky 2020, the hope was that he would play to his talent. And his talent is, hey, he could be the next OSU corner to go in the first round. That was the hope. And um, if he can't even get on the field, then clearly you're not even close to to reaching that level, that expectation that people had of this kid going into the season. Lloyd, let's stick with that. Uh, Ryan Dane press conference and he was obviously asked a lot about the defense asked a lot about yeah. Kerry Coombs um, he basically said there will be changes um, didn't get into the specifics when he was asked would those changes be in the coaching staff um, to tell us a little about a little bit about that and what do you think we're going to see from this defense moving forward what are those changes that need to happen yeah, I mean, Coach Day came out in the press conference, and quite frankly, probably one of the most, if not the most, candid uh, press conference and conversation that he's had with the media since he's taken the head job in Columbus. You know, he talked about how it's it, this isn't a one-time issue. This has been a consistent problem, um, you know, that, uh, you know, he just uh, – sitting there wondering what's going on on some defensive plays, you know, that when you're, when you're a head coach and you're walking around saying, I don't want to get into specifics, no hard decisions have been made yet. I mean, that says right. a lot. And, and additionally, when, when media members feel the need to follow up and specifically ask the question, I mean, it was specifically asked the question, I believe it was Bill Landis uh, of the athletic who, who asked, you know, can you confirm that Kerry Combs is your defensive coordinator. I mean, Ryan Day laughed, but, you know, he said yes. And it felt like it was one of those pieces where, you know, it was it kind of didn't need to ask that question because the reality is, is after a performance like that, and when you're a, a head coach coming out and saying that there's going to be major changes, I mean, in the middle of the season, it's very difficult to, to make those major changes. I mean, we saw For a very, sure. very, you know, we saw a very similar, uh, 
type of issue against Alabama. And I think it's a lot easier to, to sit back and go, well, you know, you played an Alabama team with a Heisman Trophy winning wide receiver and just an unbelievably talented program. And, you know, you had a bunch of COVID issues going into that game on the defensive side. Like you can explain that away um, as a one-off. But the reality is, is it was something that happened all year long last year. The talent was able to overcome it. Um, and the reality is, is that it doesn't seem like there have been many major adjustments. And, and unfortunately, there's really no huge change to make. Like we can talk about adjustments, but unless you're demoting Kerry Combs out of that defensive coordinator position, elevating somebody um, to a co-coordinator position and giving them the ability to call plays and make adjustments, um, you know, or, you know, somebody else within that staff also, I mean, you know, to be honest, there's nobody on that defensive staff who really has the ability to walk in and say, I'm going to call those plays. You know, a lot of people look at Larry Johnson. Larry Johnson's not a guy that they're going to move out of his spot. He's going to coach the defensive line and be their defensive line coach. He is not going to be uh, their defensive coordinator. Al Washington is somebody that people have talked about, but he's not necessarily there. Um, and quite frankly, you know, Ryan Day had an opportunity this offseason uh, to, to bring somebody in. He had a, an opportunity to bring uh, an assistant coach in that would make a difference, you know, really be able to, to pop. And, and what did he do? He elevated Parker Fleming um, and made him the special teams coordinator and assistant, uh, assistant cornerbacks coach, assistant secondary coach. And, you know, like I said, you know, when you're Ohio State, you can go out and get just about anybody you want. And, you know, I'm sure Parker Fleming's a, a great coach and a great guy, but, uh, you know, when you're trying to win championships, that's not the move that you need to make when you have one of those openings. Yeah, it, it definitely looks like this could be the first uh, big mistake of the Ryan Day era, whether it's sticking with Coombs as the DC, whether it's not bringing in someone else, as you mentioned, uh, to the staff who could make a, a major impact on a game day. Um, and as you mentioned as well, it's just a tough thing to do in season, even if somebody like an Al Washington could be the guy just to throw him into that role without the preparation of the offseason that he would have benefited from is a really tough ask and probably unfair of the guy and ultimately probably not going to make that game changing. You know, it's not going to flip that switch that 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 you expect it might. Um, they also OSU also you got uh, also suffered a big loss with Josh Proctor. Um, you know, their safety who was playing really well, one of the defensive players who was playing really well over the past uh, two games. And as you mentioned, this stretch goes back to Alabama, which could have been written off as a one-off. I heard that between the Alabama game, Minnesota, Oregon, three game stretch, the last time Ohio state allowed that many points in three games was, I don't even remember now if it was the 1800s or 1900s i know it was over 100 was, years ago it was and the I believe second it was year second season right the, yes it was the second year ohio state ever played football back in the 1890s it's been that long uh since since the buckeyes have been given have been you know shredded for that type of i mean they, they it was a completely different sport back then so you know yes. i mean this is this is something that quite frankly has never happened to Ohio State football as as we know it and as it's constituted presently, um, you know, and and you know, this is Josh like Proctor's pre, one of those. This, guys, yeah. this is like pre pre leather helmet days, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, this, is, this is I, I think they probably had beers on the sidelines. You know, I, I'm picturing like felt pennants and uh, like like striped uh, scarves that you'd find in like a Brooks Brothers catalog or something like that's that's what you're looking at. You're not you're not seeing, uh, you know, guys in, in jerseys and chest painted and stuff like that. So it's a very different world back then than, than what we're looking at now. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. And the Proctor loss, um, you know, I think. I think impacted this game because uh, I believe Oregon's last last touchdown pass, Ryan Watts was in the game, the redshirt freshman, and he just completely, you know, went for the the run and and allowed for an easy touchdown pass. And you got to figure if somebody like Proctor with his experience was on the field, it, it wouldn't have been that easy for Oregon to score. Yeah, Proctor was the guy, in my opinion, that going into this year, now this doesn't mean he's the best player or even the most important player, but he was the guy who I kind of thought that was the most irreplaceable on this team because there isn't that next level behind him to just come on in. And you saw that very, very clearly. You saw the concept where, you know, they came in, um, you know, and, and it was, you know, listen, you know, Ronnie Hickman, Lathan Ransom, Bryson Shaw, Josh Proctor, you know, they, they, you know, came in and that's, that's what happened. So, uh, you know, he, uh, Josh Proctor is the guy uh, who was making strides. He was a guy who I kind of saw as, as projecting moving forward as, Hey, I'm going to, this is going to be a guy who's going to be a, a pillar of this defense by the end of this year. And just to, to see him, you know, unfortunately, go off and, and lose the rest of the season, you know, unfortunate for him, unfortunate for the team, um, you know, just really puts a question mark back there. And, and when you're playing the type of defense that Ohio State is, and that's, that's my thought is, is, you know, they're going to make an adjustment and move out of the single high safety uh, defense because they just don't have the personnel. Um, you know, coaches say this all the time. Uh, Urban Meyer in Columbus is, is very famous for, for saying it. Uh, so you can say it all the time. You know, you, you don't fit the players into your scheme. You fit the scheme into the players. Um, and that's what they need to do. Ohio State needs to take a step back. They need to get into their rooms. They need to watch film. They got to look at themselves in the mirror and be honest with themselves and say, hey, this is who we are, this is what we have, and this is how we're going to be able to move forward successfully. And I think that's leaving that single high safety defense at least for this year, if not, you know, for this foreseeable future. So Ohio State ranked ninth in the AP top 25, number 11 in the coaches poll. Are they, you know, overranked, underranked, properly ranked? I kind of think that they're they're properly ranked. They might be a little bit overranked, in my opinion. Um, quite frankly, there's and I you know I, I feel the same way about a, a team like Clemson. Um, you know, both of these teams. In, I'm a big believer that polls are 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 independent of the year, or at least they should be. Um, neither of these teams have done anything to say, "Hey, you deserve to be a top ten team right now." Um, you know, they've they've looked. They have not looked apart when they've played a team uh, on the level of being able to play them. So uh, to me, when you're looking at an Ohio State, uh, you know, I, I don't think, listen, you know, they're somewhere between, you know, eight and 15, probably give or take, uh, um, you know, that's kind of who, who they are right now. Um, what I do think that the pollsters showed, though, is that 
they're leaving them there and they're going to have an opportunity to move their way back up. And I, I think that's what, if you're a Buckeye fan, you know, wringing your head over this and, and wanting to, you know, just, uh, you know, really bang your head against the wall. Just remember, um, you know, when, when, uh, when the Buckeyes lost to Virginia tech in 2014, they dropped a lot further down than number nine. I mean, this is, this is still a place where, if Ohio, quite frankly, Ohio State still controls their destiny, and that's one of the things about these early season non-conference games. If the Buckeyes win out, they beat Penn State, who's ranked right behind them, you know, at number ten. If they beat a Michigan team that popped into the top twenty-five this week, and then at the end of the year in the Big Ten title game, play either a, a Wisconsin. Uh, or in Iowa, Iowa, who I believe is also overranked as, as the fifth best team in the country. But that's one of those things where numbers numbers next to the names of your opponents help you. And I think that, you know, if the Buckeyes do win out, win the Big Ten title, they have a very strong likelihood of making it to the college football playoffs still this year. All right, Lloyd, one more uh, before we let you go. And I'm going to ask you to put on your athletic department hat. Um, you have experience working in athletics. You've um, been involved in hiring coaches at the Division One level. This is not a uh, directly Big Ten story in that USC is looking for a head coach. But when you hear a lot of the candidates, we do hear a couple of names from the Big Ten. Uh, namely, James Franklin is basically on everybody's top two or three as a potential candidate for USC. And also a lot of people are talking about Minnesota's PJ Fleck, who could inflect a um, you know a Pete Carroll esque energy into that program. Um, what are your thoughts on those two guys? Uh, you know, should they consider a jump to USC if the Trojans come calling? And also, if you are uh, the ads at those schools or an administrator at those schools. What, what, what do you do in that type of situation when you know another program might be eyeing your guy? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different pieces here. You know, first of all, if you're P.J. Fleck and USC calls you and I'm in Minnesota, you're, you're, you're packing your car up and, and moving tomorrow. I mean, we can... No, 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 excuse me, sir. Sir, he's not packing not his car. True. He's packing his boat. Fine, he's packing his boat. I apologize. He's packing his he's boat packing his and boat. he's going to row um, all the way to L.A. <laughs> he's going to row all... He'll row all the way to L.A. I mean, I, listen, I, he's done a great job in Minnesota. You know, he did a great job at Western Michigan. I, I think that he's a guy who I, I think a lot of people thought was trying to leave as soon as he possibly could from Minnesota, and he's shown that he's not. Um, but we also need to take a look and say, hey, USC is just a different type of job than what Minnesota is, quite frankly. Uh, totally that's a job that he is going he's, – he's, he's going to take um, James Franklin on the other side, uh, you know, this is this is more of a question mark. Franklin's a PA guy, he's somebody who uh, knows Penn State, loves Penn State, is passionate about it. Um, also, you know, I think a lot of people talk talk and think about, you know, hey, James Franklin has that personality, you know, when he's got things rolling, he loves being on college game day, he loves, you know, doing all those different types of things. I kind of think that James Franklin actually might be the perfect mixture between, uh, you know, kind of what PJ Fleck is which is that big character that, you know, just larger than life in terms of personality that he brings to the table and a coach like Luke Fickle, who, you know, has obvious connections to that USC job, not, not necessarily in terms of the natural fit and progression from being just a Midwest Ohio guy. Uh, but, you know, he 
worked for the new AD uh, out at USC. Um, was, was hired I, by. Was hired by him. I mean, that, so there's a clear and definitive connection. Fickles obviously had that type of success. I kind of think that James Franklin's a, a nice mixture between those two and would fit incredibly well at USC. Um, you know, and, and the reality is I, I do think that if you're a, an athletic director at one of those two schools, you've got to play these two things differently. Um, because again, like I talked about that Ohio state defense coaching staff looking in the mirror, when you're an athletic department staff, I think you need to look in the mirror sometimes too. I think if you're Penn state, you say to James Franklin, Hey, we're going to do whatever it is that we need to do to be able to keep you here. We're going to back, back up that Brinks truck. We're going to bring you in and we're going to bring it in and say, Hey, you know, like you've, you've really held this program together you know you you've picked it up we want to keep you here and you know it might not necessarily be the type of success that uh that penn state wants ultimately um but i I don't think that they're looking to go through a restart here by any means and i think that that they uh that they want to be able to hold on to that on on the other side if you're minnesota I, i would say the biggest mistake that athletic directors make across the country is giving uh, is, is quite frankly, giving extensions and giving huge contract numbers to coaches who either don't need it or it's not going to make a difference. P.J. Fleck isn't staying in Minnesota for an extra million and a half dollars. P.J. Fleck is going to make the decision based on does he want the USC job or not. The, the extra million, two million dollars is not keeping him in Minnesota versus that job out at USC. And you're going to put yourself behind an eight ball potentially long term by giving him that contract. Now, at the end of the day, you and I both know that's what that's what happens in these situations. Minnesota will sit there and they will offer him whatever they need to try and keep him. But at the end of the day, he's going to take that USC job if it's offered to him or he's going to probably stay at Minnesota for just about the rest of his life. So at the end of the day, do you think that both Franklin and Fleck will be coaching in the Big Ten in 2022? I would say that they are both coaching in the Big Ten in 2022, if I had to guess. Yes. All right. Great stuff, Lloyd. Thanks a lot for coming on, uh, talking some Buckeyes, talking some coaching administration stuff. Folks, I don't want to get you too excited, but when I asked Lloyd to come on, I asked him, are we just talking Buckeyes? Are we going to do the whole show? He said, today, the Buckeyes. I, I don't know what that means. It sounds like the door's open for maybe more than just Ohio State talk moving forward. Don't get too excited. I'm just taking my cues from Ryan Day. I'm taking my cues from Ryan Day. No major (laughs) decisions have been made yet. No major decisions have been made yet. Not yet, but we'll see. Again, thanks a lot for coming on. Always a blast to talk to you, whether I'm hitting the record button or we're just, you know, walking around our respective neighborhoods. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me on, Dan. Appreciate it. Great to be able to hop on and and chat again and and looking forward to more college football this coming weekend. Okay, let's move on from uh, the Ohio State Buckeyes. Uh, I think we've talked a lot about them. Um, You know, obviously that was a huge game this week and and a big shakeup in terms of uh, the Big Ten. Well, not the Big Ten standings because it was an out-of-conference game, but the hierarchy in the Big Ten and the way the Big Ten teams slot Nationally, let's move on to the Iowa Hawkeyes, who took a big jump this past week, uh, moving up five spots to number five in the AP. They're number seven in the coaches poll. And I'm going to ask myself the question I just asked our guest, Lloyd Ribner. Um, are the Hawkeyes properly ranked, underranked, overranked? I personally think they're overranked and overrated. And um, here's why. 
Um, their offense stunk. That's the bottom line. You know, I feel bad a little bit um, starting here with the team that just came off an upset win on the road. But their offense stunk, folks. They had 11 first downs in the game. They averaged 1.7 yards per carry. 41 rushes it took to get 106 yards. We're talking seven, five yards per pass attempt, 9.6 yards per completion. Spencer Petrus was 11 of 21 for 106 yards. Charlie Jones led them in receiving with 36 receiving yards. Um, they were sacked four times. So 21 pass attempts, four sacks. Out of 25 dropbacks, they were sacked four times. That is not good, folks. That is not good. And when I talked about this, I had some pushback on Twitter from an uh, Iowa fan saying, well, you know, they had the lead. They packed it in. I mean, folks, this team just didn't play well. Um, they, they barely moved the ball in the first quarter. Um, even in the, they had a decent second quarter. Third quarter, again, couldn't move the ball. It just was a, 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 a terrible showing. Uh, Goodson had 21 carries for 55 yards. That's only 2.6 yards per carry. Their longest run of the day was a 13-yard run. Um, it, it was just a very, very under underwhelming um, effort from their offense. Uh, uh, listening to some of the other people out there in the college football world, Bud Elliott, for those that believe in turnover luck, 23.3 uh, points in turnover luck. In a 10-point win, a 27-17 win. So, you know, obviously not all turnovers are lucky. You're making them happen. And, and as I spoke about heading into the season, this Iowa team um, is traditionally one that excels at intercepting the football. But they're not going to finish plus 45 in turnover margin. They're not going to finish the season with, you know, 40 turnovers forced and zero committed. We know that's not going to happen. So uh, I just don't see them being a top 10 team. Um, I think Iowa, Indiana was exposed in week one. That's why I loved Iowa in that game. Um, maybe it's very possible Iowa State was exposed. It's, I, you know, going into that game, I was wondering, I don't know enough about Iowa State because I'm so, you know, focused in on the Big Ten teams. But is it possible Iowa State was the Indiana of the Big 12 and they just happened to play those two teams in the first two weeks? I think that is very, very possible. Um, but I just think I need to see a lot more, a lot more. Let me say it again, a lot more from this Iowa offense before I'm going to anoint them as a team to beat in the Big Ten and tell people that they are a top five bunch. Um, defensively, I think it was a very strong effort. Once again, this is clearly the strength of the team. If you want to tell me the defense is legit, you're not going to get a lot of pushback from me. I think the defense is legit. Is the defense good enough for the Hawkeyes to be a top five team? Uh, it, it might be. It might be. Uh, definitely good enough to be a top 10 team for sure. Definitely good enough to win the Big Ten West. The defense did their job. Brees Hall, 16 carries, 69 yards, 4.3 yards per carry. Did a very solid job on him. Um, the uh, quarterback, Bryce Purdy, got benched. He was only 13 to 27. Kolar, their star tight end, had four catches for only 34 yards. 
He got less than 10 yards a catch. That was on six targets. So they, they did a really good job defensively to uh, shut down that Iowa State offense. Um, they have a better offensive line than the Indiana Hoosiers do. So this was a tougher test for that D-line, which is the unit that I had some questions about the Hawkeyes going into the season. Uh, they had six QB hurries in the game. Um, Van Valkenburg had a nice game with six tackles and a QB hurry. Uh, Joe Evans came off the bench. He's kind of that pass rush specialist. He had a sack in the game. Strong effort from their three linebackers, Jack Campbell, Seth Benson, Justin Jacobs, who I love a lot. I think he is going to be a big-time player on the second level of that defense for the Hawkeyes. Jacobs had uh, a forced fumble in that game. He had a pass breakup. Riley Moss, while no interceptions, did have eight tackles, tied for the team lead with Jack Campbell. Uh, Matt Hankins, though, chimed in with two interceptions, didn't return any for a touchdown, but he set up, uh, helped set up the Iowa offense with some good field position, taking the ball away. So, yeah, I'm sorry, Iowa fans. Hate me if you want, but I think the Hawkeyes are overranked, overrated as a number five team. They don't look like a playoff team yet because the offense needs to take a significant, significant leap forward before we can even remotely start considering them in that vein. It's not even close. They really need to improve a lot, a lot more there before we give them that um, respect. You know, at the end of the day, folks, it's a loss. You know what I mean? It's a loss. I, I was asked somebody would rather be one and one or two and oh, you know, one and one like Ohio State is, as if I'm an Ohio State fan, um, or two and oh like Iowa. It's like, I don't know, man. I mean, Rutgers is two and oh, Michigan is two and oh. Um, you know, there's other tip Purdue's two and oh. Should we put those teams ahead of would you rather be Ohio State a one and one or Purdue a two and oh? It's 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 kind of like a silly question in my opinion. Um and at the end, you know, they get the win. I can't take the win away from them. And if they play better moving forward and they win out, they will have a chance. Um, this is polls are about opinions. They're not uh, factually based. This is something I tweeted out a bunch of times and I get very frustrated when people talk about polls. All polls, my poll, your poll, their poll, everybody's poll is an opinion. None of them are facts. No poll is facts. Regardless of what your criteria is, it's always just an opinion. Standings are things you can't debate or argue about. Polls are just people's opinions, okay? And I'm giving you my opinion, and that is that Iowa does not look like a top five caliber team. Now, it's very possible right now no Big Ten team has looked like a top five caliber team. All right, let's talk about Rutgers, uh, the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. As I mentioned, let me check. I, I forgot to uh, check to see how many votes they have um, in the polls this week. Uh, I know I was surprised to see Rutgers get uh, some big-time votes. I don't, I'm not seeing them. Are they, did they not get votes? They must, all right, they got 10 votes. Others receiving votes. They got 10 votes in the um, coaches poll, which is one down from last week when they had 11. So I guess someone there decided, you know, the win wasn't impressive enough at the Carrier Dome, 17-7 win over the Orange. And, and you know what? They're right. The win, the win was not impressive enough for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, who had only 195 yards of offense. They averaged just a mere, are you kidding me, 1.2 yards per rush against Syracuse's defense. 
5.2 yards per pass. Even worse, 6.6 yards per completion. So Vidrell was 22 of 28 passing, but only for 145 yards. I mean, teams are rushing better than these 6.6 yards per carry. Um, he missed Melton on an open touchdown deep throw, which is the story of the Rutgers offense. Poor Bo Melton. If this guy was a, this guy is going to be a sleeper in the NFL draft because he consistently wins, gets open deep, and consistently does not get connected. Does not get either overthrown, underthrown, sideways thrown, um, but not thrown to where he is. They were fortunate enough that on the very next play. Haskins was wide open and Vidrell did find him for a touchdown. There was uh, that was a big play and two key two key moments here were the difference of this game. Was one was early on Syracuse had the ball inside the 10-yard line. Um, their best player Harris, the wide receiver, caught a pass, was inside the 10. It was close to the first down range. It was going to be, you know, did he get the first down or is it going to be fourth and half a yard? Um, it looked like his knee was down. Uh, they ruled it a fumble. I could not believe they over they did not overturn it, that they, they went with the play stands as called. So they took away a situation where Syracuse would have had either a uh, gimme field goal or an opportunity to score a touchdown. And then later on in the game, before that touchdown to uh, the wide open Haskins, there was a penalty sequence where they called what I thought was a uh, questionable it was a third down play for Rutgers they were short of the of the first down marker so they would have uh, had to have settled for a field goal there was a somewhat questionable not awful but questionable um, personal foul called on the Syracuse player who kind of picked up the Rutgers player to almost you know slam him down but he didn't slam he didn't end up slamming him down really and there was also a holding call on Rutgers, which could have pushed them back. Um, so instead of a third and 20-something or a field goal attempt, Rutgers got to play the down over again. Except, wait, they called a flag on Dino Babers, the Syracuse coach. And I got I, I, I wish I knew what he said to earn a flag on that play because that's kind of an egregious play to give Rutgers a first down and then a touchdown. So, you know, that that we're talking easy 10 points that Rutgers may maybe have benefited with from uh, the officiating in that game. Um, the defense was solid. The defense performed well. They only allowed 2.2 yards per carry, um, 6 yards per pass attempt, 10.1 yards per catch. But overall, it was 4.2 to 1.7. to 2.7 yards per play, a big edge for Syracuse, Um, not one that you're typically going to win the game by. Um, Fatu Kasi, their linebacker, had another monster game with 12 tackles. He had half a TFL. Good sign, though, positive sign from Rutgers that the defensive front still continues to get into the backfield. That was a big strength last year when when they led the Big Ten, surprisingly, in tackles for a loss. They had five sacks, seven tackles for loss for Syracuse. Three of the sacks came from the defensive line. Toure, their linebacker, their best edge guy, their athletic pass rusher, he also chimed in with a sack. On the season, they now have eight sacks, 16 tackles for loss. So this defense is one that could um, you know, keep them in games uh, moving forward. 
Let's jump back to the polls and look at the Michigan Wolverines, who have snuck in, snuck in there at number 25 in the polls, uh, 2-0. Somehow they're still behind North Carolina, um, still behind uh, BYU, behind a Miami team that that you know didn't look good for two games, behind an Auburn team that didn't play anybody. Um, remember, going into the year, I told you these Michigan Wolverines were undervalued. I still think they're undervalued. Um, it was an interesting game there. You know, let's start with the positive for the Wolverines, which is I think they raised, I think it's safe to say, the floor for this team has been raised. They rushed for 343 yards against the Washington Huskies for 6.1 yards per carry. Blake Corum, what a beast this kid is. He's really coming into his own this season. He went for a buck 71 on the ground, uh, including a long touchdown run to get the scoring going and put the Wolverines up 10 nothing. Uh, both he and Haskins went over 150 yards. They combined for 48 carries and only had one negative yard rushing there. So great effort from the running game. And the reason I say the 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 floor, I should say, has been raised is because this Washington team, while disappointing, um, while underachieving, the defense isn't the problem at Washington. They have a very, very solid, strong defense uh, in Washington. The Huskies do. So it's not easy to do that against that team. So if you can do that against Washington's defense, I suspect you will be able to do it at the very least against Michigan State, uh, against Indiana, against Rutgers, against Maryland. Um, can you do it against Ohio State? Maybe. Maybe. Oregon did it. Um, can you do it against Penn State? Maybe. I don't know. You know, But um, when you talk about matching up with Penn State and Ohio State, now you're talking about the ceiling, not the floor. So I think it's safe to say the floor has been raised for the Wolverines. They had that 31-10 win. Great job by the defense. They did a phenomenal job um, stopping the running game of Washington. Only 50 yards rushing for the Huskies. Um, only only 1.6 yards per carry. The defense was phenomenal. Uh, Raw Josh Ross, their senior linebacker, had 11 tackles. Aiden Hutchinson was the star of the game with his two and a half sacks. He also had a quarterback hurry. We saw a lot of players being used by the Michigan defense. Um, you know that defense looks very different under new coordinator Mike McDonald. Um, we saw them give up some yards there um, towards the end of the game. Uh, from Washington, uh, but a lot of it was after Michigan had built a comfortable lead. The Huskies scored 100 and uh, put up, excuse me, put up 145 yards in the fourth quarter. That's when they scored their only touchdown of the game. So all in all, I think you're happy, very happy with the rushing game. Um, is looking as good as it ever has under Jim Harbaugh. The defense looks like it might be ready to bounce back. I'm not ready to say they're uh, one of Don Brown's top five units in college football, which he had a couple, but they're not going to be as vulnerable, I don't think, as they were a year ago. Um, definitely trending in the right direction. Still, though, we'll need to improve as the competition gets tougher. The defense really hasn't been tested by a top-notch offense yet. 
Now, the reason I say the the floor has been raised, but not the ceiling, is because you know they really didn't do a lot throwing the football. Cade McNamara was seven of fifteen passing, only forty four yards. That's two point nine yards per attempt, five point seven yards. Um, excuse me, six point three yards per completion. So. Obviously, if Michigan is going to really take a step forward in terms of the ceiling for the season, can they compete with a Penn State? Can they compete with an Ohio State? They're not going to be able to do it just by rushing the football down that other team's throat. They're going to need a more balanced offense, and we just didn't get – we didn't see it. They only threw 15 times. Is that a lack of trust in Cade McNamara against a good Washington team that had – that has two excellent cornerbacks that, you know, NFL pedigree type cornerbacks. Was it a situation where it's week two? It's his second start of the season, third or fourth start of his career. Why force it against that type of defense, especially if we're continuing to run the football this effectively? But ultimately, whatever the reason is, they're going to need more from the passing game if they're really going to challenge the top teams in the Big Ten East. Um, First game without Ronnie Bell, did not see much production from the receiving core. Um, The receivers were only targeted five times, three receptions. Tight ends had no catches in the game. So, you know, it was kind of a a stalled out passing attack. Um, On a day they didn't need it, on a day that they just ran the ball and got whatever they wanted on the ground, that definitely needs to be considered. But, if Michigan is going to be among the elite teams in that division, they will need to give us a lot more. Just like I talked about, Iowa's offense need to give us more. Well, the Michigan passing game is going to need to show some growth and do more if they're going to raise the ceiling for this for this season. But I think it's hard to imagine at this point them not winning at least eight games, probably nine games, um, the way the rest of the defense, the rest, the way the rest of the team, excuse me running game, and defense has looked through two games. All right, let's stay with our last. Let's stay within our Power 5 games. Our final one would be Illinois going to Virginia, and they were dropped 42-14. to Big picture-wise, we saw a regression for Art Sikowski. Um, he played his best football off the bench against Nebraska. He took a little bit of a step back against UTSA, but did throw for some yards, had some touchdown passes, avoided interceptions. Well, he took a further step back against Virginia. This is his worst game so far, only 4.9 yards per attempt. He was intercepted. Um, They struggled running the football. They ran the ball 27 times. This team cannot fall from behind. We knew that already. They rushed only 27 times versus 45 passes. That is not the formula either for moving the ball on offense for this Illinois team. It's also not the formula for them controlling the ball and keeping the defense on the field. Um, The pass defense is extremely vulnerable. They gave up over 400 yards through the air. um, And also Armstrong, five touchdowns there as well, with zero zero sacks in the game. So no pressure coming from that Illinois defense. Uh, Brandon Peters appears to be coming back this week, so there's no Wally Pip situation. Basically, you know, Illinois, uh, I'm not going to kill them too much because they're kind of who we expected they would be, but coming off that opening game 
that big victory against Nebraska, that upset win at home to go 1-0, kick off the Brett Bielema era on the right foot, to get upset by UTSA at home, and then to get you know blown out by four touchdowns at Virginia as a 10-point underdog, it's disappointing. You know, there it definitely feels like they've undone, you know, the positive vibes from week one. Now, you know, they are getting Brandon Peters back, which will be key. But unless I think really unless they can run the football behind what's supposed to be a pretty decent offensive line, it's not going to really matter which quarterback is in there. Although Peters definitely, I think, gives you more than Art Sitkowski does. All right, we had some uh, Power 5 against Group of 5 games, including a couple, you know, facing uh, with a Big Ten ranked teams, including Penn State, who had number 10 in the AP Top 25, number 12 in the coaches poll, is right behind Ohio State. I mistakenly thought Ball State might be able to give them a game. Uh, Penn State won 44-13. Their offense, you know, was good. 493 yards. In total, I was a little disappointed in the run game, I have to say. Um, while they did average five yards per carry as a team, their longest run was by Sean Clifford, uh, who scrambled 43 yards. The longest run by a running back in the game was only 12 yards. Noah Kane uh, ran for 69 yards, only 3.4 yards per carry. So that was pretty disappointing, in my opinion. You know, you want to be able if you if you can't establish uh, some dominance on the line of scrimmage against a ball state what's going to happen when you face bigger tougher uh, defenses in the Big Ten East uh, and the Big Ten in general maybe starting this week when they play Auburn out of the SEC uh, defensively they, they really did a great job shut down ball state um, uh, Luketa the linebacker had four tackles, including a big INT spectacular INT TD return. Um, the disappointment there would be the fact that they only had one sack. Remember, this is a unit that is breaking in two new defensive ends, three new starters at the line of scrimmage, only one sack overall, none from the defensive line, and that's on 45 dropbacks. So if they don't get pressure on Bo Nix, that's something to watch moving forward for Penn State, but I do still think they have an opportunity to have an elite defense, and uh, both sides of the ball showed some potential there. Um, A little more concerning was the effort from the Minnesota Golden Gophers, who got their first win of the season. Maybe there was um, a little letdown, but they did jump out to a 21-3 halftime lead. Um, You know, is it possible that after playing Ohio State Week 1, after going into the locker room with a 21 to 3 lead did they have a little lull could they have had the letdown there where they had the energy to coming off a loss to say you know we got to get that w we got to show people that the positive things we did against ohio state will carry over against other opponents and then maybe once they got the lead they let down a little bit i don't know maybe that's taking them off the hook but they scored um, three touchdowns in their first four offensive possessions. However, in the second half and six possessions, they had one touchdown. They had a drive that was zero yards off the turnover where they kicked a field goal. And they had two three and outs where there was negative yards. 
Um, Potts did a nice job filling in for Mo Ibrahim uh, with 178 yards, but Tanner Morgan was only 8 of 17 passing uh, below 50%. On the flip side, you know, the defense also great first half, five possessions, three of them were punts. They also got a turnover with a fumble, um, a field goal. Only one drive in the first half was more than four plays, so they really did their job in the first half. However, in the second half, five possessions by Miami, Ohio, no punts, touchdown, field goal, touchdown, interception, touchdown. Uh, Four of those drives went eight plays at least. They had no sacks in the game. Um, So that's, again, that's a big disappointment. Another uh, Big Ten team here, this seems to be a trend with a few of these teams, the inability to get to the opposing team's uh, quarterback and their pass defense is definitely a major, major question mark. They allowed 7.6 yards per attempt, 14.8 yards per completion for Miami, Ohio. Most of that in the second half. They held on to win 31 26, but definitely a disappointing performance for the Gophers, where you thought maybe off Ohio State they would, you know, won't come out, win impressively, look that way in the first half maybe lost their focus in the second half. We'll learn more about them moving forward. Um, We have the Purdue Boilermakers took care of business against the UConn Huskies. They were about a 35, 34 and a half point favorite. They were up 35 zip at the half, 49, nothing after three quarters. And that was the final score, 49 zip. Nobody scored in that fourth quarter. So they pretty much cruised to, to victory um, six touchdown passes in the game, four by Jack Plummer. Their receiver, star receiver Bell, had six catches, 121 yards, and three touchdowns. Once again, no sacks. No sacks. It's hard. You know, they pitched a shutout, so I'm not going to get too hard on their defense and rip them. But 25 pass attempts, no sacks. They did get credited for seven quarterback hurries. Um, I did have that game on, but, you know, I got to be honest, I wasn't totally focused in. Um, George, I did see George Karlaftis um, get into the backfield a few times. So he was he had three of those quarterback hurries. He also had a forced fumble in the game and two passes uh, broken up. So even though he did not have a sack, he did have a major impact with his ability to get into the backfield. Um, Wisconsin, who's ranked 18th in the, the AP poll, 17th. In the coaches' poll, the only Big Ten team who's ranked higher in the coaches' poll, they rushed for 352 yards. Most of them came from Chaz Malusi, the Clemson transfer, Berger. You know, like, folks, I told you last year, I told you going into the season that last year, Jalen Berger, to me, did not look that impressive. He continues to kind of look pedestrian, only 4.1 yards per rush for Jalen Berger on 15 carries. They're lucky they got Malusi, the transfer from Clemson, but Berger needs to do more against an Eastern Michigan. Graham Mertz was fine, um, 14 to 17, 141 yards, a little bit ho hum um, in terms of his production. Uh, what we said to look for was does he get the wide receivers more involved and not focus so much on Jake Ferguson? Well, yeah, that's what we saw of his 17 attempts, nine were to the number two receivers, the top two receivers, Pryor and uh, Danny Davis. Seven of them were completed for 84 yards. 
So, you know, nothing to write home about, nothing to get too excited about, but definitely a step in the right direction for that Wisconsin passing game. Uh, And finally, um, obviously, as I mentioned last week, we're not really going to get too much into the uh, games against FCS opponents. So Nebraska, I told you last week, I promised Nebraska fans I would talk about you this week. They were the only team that played last week that I didn't get into. Well, this week they played Buffalo, 28-3 win, a much-needed win for the Huskers. But, you know, I got to be honest, I'm still not totally impressed with what I saw because it was a lot of big plays. And, you know, you're going to tell me they had 8.5 yards per play versus 4.3 by Buffalo. So that's obviously stellar, but they it took them a while to put this game away. It, it was still a game going into the fourth quarter, 14-3. to three, And it was basically big plays. You know, Adrian Martinez um, had 112 yards rushing on nine carries. He was 13-19 passing for 242 yards. Uh, the man that really... Uh, came through was Toure, the grad transfer receiver. He's doing what they expect him to do um, to provide big play ability. But he had, you know, he had a 71 touchdown, 71 yard touchdown, a 68 yard touchdown. They also had an interception returned to the one yard line for a touchdown. So their TDs came on four play drive, a four play drive, a one play drive for one yard, and a one play drive. For 68 yards. So while while the big plays are great, you know, we wanted those big plays. Yes, we wanted to see those big plays. But what happened in all the other possessions? You're telling me against Buffalo, not one time could you sustain a drive? Could you continuously move the chains and pick up first downs and move the ball down the field? Because basically that you didn't. That the only time they scored was when they hit a big play, or were set up at the one-yard line. So to me, that's kind of concerning against a Buffalo team because you're you're not going to be able to feast on big plays alone when you step up in competition. And boy, are they stepping up in competition this week because they are uh, playing their old Big 12, Big 8 rival, the Oklahoma Sooners. Well, they will need the big plays, but they will also need some some sustained drives and uh, to keep the defense off the field, um, similar to Purdue, um, you allowed three points defensively. Uh, it's hard to knock that. Um, you did a decent job in terms of only 4.3 yards per play. You'll take that. Um, but no sacks. A lot A lot of these Big Ten teams this week, no sacks, one sack. Um, you'd like to see more pressure coming from the defenses. Um but yeah, so I think a decent effort for Nebraska, something that the, the team definitely needed, but not necessarily one that's going to move the dial in terms of do I think maybe Nebraska has turned a corner? I'm not sure. I, I need to see more, and it's probably not going to be fair to judge what they do against an Oklahoma. Uh, we're talking about a team that is you know right now three in both polls, so that's not necessarily a fair barometer. Uh, to gauge the Cornhuskers, but I think we're going to need to see more consistency from that offense. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that Nebraska has athletes and can hit on big plays, but can they have sustained, consistent success? That's something that they're going to need to do moving forward if they're going to surprise some people and jump back into that 
Big 12 West race and um, and or at least make a bowl. You know what I mean? At least make a bowl and have a six and six, seven and five type season, which I think is a minimum right now for Scott Frost if he wants to leave his job. All right, folks, that is the wrap up for week two um, here at the big Big Ten football show. I am your host, Daniel Mogollon. You can find me on Twitter at Dan the Sportman. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll be back on Friday with our Big Bets podcast, which I know a lot of you are looking forward to.